I'm just imagining playing a game and having a bad smell fill the room. I guess there's some trouble with the Ninja Turtles. Can you tell me more about that? Well, the uh, IMDb rating of the movie was pretty bad. (laughs) Yep, the Turtles got involved with Michael Bay and bad things happened. And that resulted in shell shock? Yes. Uh, That is what shell shock is, and that's why the tech industry is so worried. What I was surprised with is how much bash is used in things that I didn't even figure it would be used in. Like, uh, I'm not sure, did you see any of the exploits? No. What kinds of things were exploited, and did there, were they things that ended up getting root privileges? My understanding, I haven't seen this yet. I haven't seen if it's root or not. But the exploit was able to exploit a web server simply by using a malformed header. Right, because it, because Apache uses Bash, right? Yes, apparently Apache uses Bash. It uses Bash for parsing. Right, but usually Apache doesn't run as root these days, right? No, I mean, most processes within Apache run as the user nobody. Yeah, that, that's what I thought. Do we know of anything that gets a root escalation yet? I haven't seen anything. However, it's something that I'm sure we'll get follow-up on. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll find something. Yeah. I very briefly looked into this, and it appears to be an issue with the way that uh, environment variables get transferred to the Bash shell. And the Bash shell, for anyone that doesn't know, is a Unix shell where uh, where you type things into the command line. It has a number of uh, editing and history and whatnot features and it's an extremely common shell that's the default shell for most uh linux distributions and on the mac these days and it looks like when you're passing environment variables to this shell if it sees a function it will go to the end of that function it will just keep on going it will assign that environment variable to the function that you specify and then the stuff after that just gets uh executed and so you can put in malicious code uh, there. And so what can happen is any shell that you happen to be running, if someone sets one of these environment variables, whenever bash is then invoked, uh, the envir- environment variables will be transferred to the bash shell and then executed by bash, even though the, even though the owner shell did not intend that to happen necessarily. And this is, is this a pretty good explanation of how it worked or do you have anything to add? Uh, that sounds about right from what I've seen. Do you think this is worse or better or about the same as the Heartbleed bug? In a lot of ways, I think it's worse simply because it's not just reading a private key or potentially things from memory. It is potentially having these machines be entirely exploitable. But on the bright side, at least you can't necessarily get arbitrary memory very... Well, can yeah, you can't arbitrarily get memory unless we find a, a root escalation, right? With the SSH one, it's um, you, you can turn it into a full system compromise, right? With, but with this one, you can't necessarily do it unless there's a, another link in the chain. I mean, what I understood about Heartbleed is that... Uh, With Heartbleed, you can read arbitrary pieces of memory within the program, which in that case, in a lot of cases, is the person's private key, which made it where the server could be spoofed, where you could potentially steal their SSL certificate. 
SSH seems to use bash, so it's possible to pass malicious code to it. Uh, This sounds heartbleed worthy. Yeah. Does that mean that we need to change all our passwords again? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I have 130 passwords to go and reset again. This sucks. Uh. Actually, it looks like it doesn't, in the example here, it doesn't run until after you've authenticated the first time. However, it seemed like it was a way to bypass two-factor authentication. It's not the world is on fire. It's just uh, a couple of houses. Well, they did rate it as a 10 out of 10. (laughs) Which may be be your house. Yeah. It probably will be your house. On to the next topic. We're going to talk a little bit about the conference that Oculus had, uh, Oculus Connect, where they recently did a keynote with a, a number of speakers. I'm going to actually start this up with a little bit of follow-up on my own, just because I got it wrong last time. The the pen tile displays uh, don't have five subpixels, they have four, and they share the green subpixel. Uh, every two pixels has four subpixels. Yeah, so there's one subpixel is green and red, and then the other subpixel is green and blue, correct? Right. This is because the human eye is more sensitive to green and thus more sensitive to detail in green. And so they figured that was the important one. Something kind of interesting there is there were some suggestions to put, there were some suggestions to do things like put green borders around text or other things that need to be extra clear or, uh, have the green on black old school monitor kinds of stuff it, when people are making Oculus Rift games. For Oculus Connect, I'll just give a quick overview of what happened. A number of presenters, there was the CEO, Brendan Ereeb. He he gave basically a history of Oculus and VR and did lots of sort of hand wavy stuff and announced the new prototype, which we'll get to later. Uh, then there's Nate Mitchell, which is the vice president of product, and he announced some new services and talked about some new demos. Then there was Michael Abrash, who gave a presentation on perception and what's needed for presence. And then there was John Carmack, who spoke mostly about working on the Gear VR uh, device, as well as making a case for bringing back interlaced monitors and a sort of grab bag of other technical topics. And after that, there was a panel with a bunch of Q&A, uh, and that one included the founder, uh, Palmer Lucky, <clears throat> along with Carmack and Abrash and someone else that isn't coming to mind at the moment. That's basically who was giving the presentation and an overview of what they talked about. Uh, the, the details are a bit more interesting. First of all, they announced that the DK1 is going to be open source, like not just the software but the hardware as well so you could go and build yourself a dk1 with all their schematics now if you wanted to that sounds like a very carmack thing to do yeah i was very reminded of the open sourcing of doom and quake and whatnot i was reading that the only thing that really isn't available right now is the original display to the dk1 yeah you'd have a hard time making it because they don't actually manufacture those displays anymore So how would that work? Would you just get another type of display or possibly even a superior display in its place? Yeah, that's pretty much what you'd have to do. 
Um, so what's the license like with that? Like if you wanted, if you were a manufacturer and wanted to actually do something, is it just like a hobbyist license or is it completely open? The license is the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. You are able to share, copy, and redistribute the material in any form and adapt, remix, transform, and build the material for any purpose, including uh, commercially. So that means that if they wanted to, we could have dozens of DK1 knockoffs showing up momentarily, but I don't think that's really going to happen. So did they say their rationale for any of this? I think they just wanted to further VR as much as they can, and that's sort of their continued goal is to make VR better and in any way that they can, including helping other companies and even competitors make VR better. They've said a number of times that they're really happy that Sony is getting into the VR market with the device that they showed because they think it legitimizes their own efforts. Yeah, and it also means that there are going to be more games that ultimately use VR. And if there are more games that use more VR, it uh, works out for Oculus as well. Yeah, it's sort of the the rising tide raises all ships thing. Mm. What's up with Crescent Bay? One of the things that they announced during the keynote was the Crescent Bay prototype. I imagine a lot of people that just got their DK2s are like, ah! They consider it to be as big of a leap as it was from the DK1 to DK2, uh, from being the DK2 to this prototype. But my, my sort of response to that is, well, they, they had the Crystal Cove stuff. They, they were demonstrating the Crystal Cove stuff like six months before the, the DK2s were put out. So I'm, I'm not too terribly annoyed that <laughs> there's shiny new things all of a sudden, even though I only recently got well, I guess recently is a couple of months ago, recently got my DK2. Crescent Bay isn't the equivalent of a DK3, is it? No. Uh, it. I, I don't even know if they're going to do a DK3. Uh, I, it's, it's, they said that the Crescent Bay is very close to what they are planning on doing for the first consumer version. So they said they're most of the way there for the first consumer version. I don't, I don't know if they are going to get another one out too. So... The things that it has, it has higher resolution, which means it's now higher than 1080p. It has better optics. It has uh, built-in headphones. And they, they claim that these headphones are going to be high quality and that uh, Palmer is an audiophile. But looking at the headphones, they didn't look, <laughs> they didn't look that high end. Maybe, maybe, maybe they are high end and I just don't realize it. <laughs> I keep thinking of Apple, how Apple talked up their ear pods that come with the iPhone and the iPod. Yeah. And they did say that they're trying to get more into the audio side of things. They're licensing a technology called a Real Space 3D from the University of Maryland to do more spatial audio kinds of th- stuff. That just seems odd to me, the idea of adding headphones to the VR set. Supposedly they're still detachable, so you can put in, you can swap in your own headphones fairly easily. I just think about what kind of cost does this add to a unit like this? That's why I don't think that they're actually high end. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Since they're, I mean, they've always said that their target price is like $300 for the consumer version. Right. Considering that good headphones run around $300 just for them alone. Yeah. At best, they could be equivalent to maybe $50 headphones, and then they would have sort of 
supplier side pricing advantage. Any higher than that would drive the cost of the units up too high. I didn't see the resolution on Crescent Bay. Do you know that offhand? I don't think that they gave actual specs. So they just said higher. Oh, okay. My guess is... 2560? Yeah, my guess is the 2560, like, 4, right? The Note 4 has? Uh, I think it's 2560 by 1440. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. That, that would be my guess. I don't think they actually gave... They they were very they were very closely guarded on the specs for this particular one. In the Carmack talk, there was a lot of talk about some of the tricks that he wanted to use. Did any of that carry over to the Crescent Bay unit? They're not saying what frame rate it was running at, and they're not saying... I don't think that they're saying that what sort of refresh that they had either. So it's difficult to know how much of that was incorporated. Okay, because Carmack's talk, I think you said, was covering the gear, which the gear is 75 hertz from what he was saying. No, the DK2 is 75 hertz. The gear is actually 60 hertz. And we'll get oh, to okay. that in a little bit. I saw that Crescent Bay has 360 degree head tracking. Now you can move your way, head away from the monitor when you're not facing it and it will continue to track you. Whereas before you would get jarringly pulled out of the experience. It still doesn't solve the cable issue. Well, I was going to ask, how did the DK2 handle it? What was the limit? It was just limited to being within line of sight of the monitor? So the DK2, you had to be facing it or sideways from it. You couldn't be facing away from it and have your head be positionally tracked. Mm. Um, if you're lucky and you're sort of tilted, you might be able to get it. There are no LEDs on the back of the thing because there's just a strap there. And so basically on the new one, they put little LEDs on the strap. And that's basically mm. how they solved it. I would like to see them get away from using a camera eventually, but it, does, it seems like this is the path that they've chosen. Uh, what would you prefer them to use? I honestly don't know. Um, I imagine that they've probably tried everything that's cost-effective. I mean, the original way that they did it was having the a VR room with a whole bunch of patterns on the walls. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you can't exactly expect a user to have a whole bunch of patterns all over their, their room that they're doing their VR in. But I was thinking... If it was done sort of similarly to the way a uh, laser mouse is or other sort of um LiDAR through like a... You're thinking like the Kinect, right? No, I, I was thinking because that still requires an external camera. I, I want something that's on the device itself. If it has two 2D LiDARs, uh, one going in vertically and one going horizontally... It should be able to, unless you're for some reason using your VR headset out in the middle of a field, be able to get a good track for you all the time. My, my, my guess is that they don't want to do that just because it's too expensive. Uh, when I was doing the Axion racing stuff, we had a, a 2D LiDAR that we used for vision that worked pretty well, and it would have probably worked for well for orienting yourself as well. It did, however, cost a lot of money. Would there be any miniaturization problems with that? Well, yeah, that's the other problem with that idea is that uh, when you have a 2D LiDAR, you also, it's not really 2D. It's basically uh, 1D and then it has a mirror that swivels back and forth. You would have to miniaturize the mirror as well. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure they're trying to minimize any use of moving parts. Yeah, that, that's always a, a source of potential source of failure. Still... I think that 
it would be nice if they could have something on the head that did the tracking instead of on the computer that looked at you. One thing that they could use also, and it still requires something external, is something like the Six Sense one, which uses uh, magnetic fields that we discussed a little bit before. Uh, sticking one of those on your head would also work because it maybe they don't want the extra weight or something. Hmm. But that's 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 a more accurate and not and it doesn't have line of sight problems. Well, I can see there being a good case for them not wanting to add weight simply because it increases the amount of time somebody can use the unit if there isn't a lot of weight weighing them down. Yeah. All right. So one thing that does not have any sort of translation tracking is the Gear VR that they announced. And this is a lot of the focus of Carmack's talk. And so the, the Gear VR was, a, we talked a little bit about it previously and they talked a lot more about it uh, at the Oculus Connect conference. Carmack had some interesting things to say about it. As we mentioned just a little bit earlier, it uses a 60 hertz low persistence display, which is a lower refresh rate than the DK2. Some people had asked, well, how come the DK2, which has a Note 3 screen, uh, is able to work at 75 hertz, but the Note 4 screen is only at 60 hertz, and the answer is basically they overclocked the Note 3 screen to get it to work at that refresh rate. People also were wondering, since the Note 4 screen has a nice higher resolution, are you able to get much out of that? And the answer is not really. Uh, even though you have more pixels on the screen, you still are doing internal rendering at 1K per by 1K per eye. Yeah, I remember him saying about that. He d he did say that there are some exceptions to that. One is like there's a cinema app wh where you watch movies, and that one does a thing where it goes. It has a special mode where it goes and uses the full resolution. What I didn't quite follow was why is it 1K by 1K per eye, as opposed to what? As opposed to say, if the display is 2560 by 1440. Why wouldn't it be 1280 by whatever the height would be? Why would it be 1024 by 1024? I don't I don't know exactly. I so I think that the reason that you want to do 1K by 1K as opposed to a resolution that's closer to the actual form factor of the display is part of it is you're already overscanning. You need in order to do the distortion from the the counter distortion properly, you need to have some you need to render larger than the screen in the first place, uh, which will then get distorted down onto the screen. Oh, so it's part of the transform process. Right. And then if you're doing that anyway, you might as well pick a nice, easy-to-work-with number. Yeah, something Power of 2 related. Which, <clears throat> Power of 2, it makes sense when you get into things like textures. One of the things that he talked about is how how is the Gear VR better than the Google Cardboard? One of the things is that... The tracker for Google Cardboard is much lower because it just uses the built-in accelerometer, or not sorry, accelerometer, the built-in gyroscope on the phone. So the the tracker is not as high res, uh, is not at as high a refresh rate as the Oculus one, the Gear one. The more important thing is that the cardboard has at least forty-eight milliseconds of latency before you even get to the output because of the triple buffer. And he got into this is sort of a the Android by default uses a triple buffer and 
So you're waiting for these old frames to go in before you can get your response. So your your movement to photon time is much longer than it needs to be for good VR. Carmack had talked about asking Samsung to to be able to have a way to get rid of the 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 extra buffers. So he wanted to write directly to the front buffer. And there was a lot of resistance from Samsung on being able to do that. Isn't there a lot of tearing if you do just a single buffer write? There would be normally, but if you keep track of the timing properly, you can do it. It's sort of, he, he, he had talked about recently, uh, the old Atari racing the beam. You, you want to keep your processing ahead of where it's drawing. And you can sort of, by playing with the timings, you can sort of get back to that a little bit. He was able to demonstrate how good this was for VR to Samsung by taking an S4 and doing a hack where he swapped in the write buffer as he was writing into it and then never swapped back. And this is apparently a trick that you can only do with the S4. So he just got really lucky that, that he was happened to be using this particular Android dev- device for his development that he could then use to present the proof of concept to Samsung. Would something like this be done on the driver level when it comes to Oculus sets, or would this be things that would have to be done on the application level? It has to be the driver level or else Carmack wouldn't have needed Samsung to do it for him. The phone itself was not allowing it, so it had to be incorporated at the at the base software level. Well, I guess what I'm talking about is some of the tricks that he's looking to do within um, VR games. Would this be things that all developers would have to do, or would this be something that he would write within the SDK for Oculus? I, I believe it's part of the SDK for Oculus, and that actually takes care of a number of things for you. So when you're rendering, you're you're trying to render as fast as you can in your game, but that then gets sent off to the Oculus SDK. And the Oculus SDK is the thing that is actually going and trying to make sure that it hits 60 frames per second. So, and it's also take, it's also taking care of the timings for you as well in this case, I believe. Another one of the things that it does is a thing called time warp. And do you, do you, are you aware of what time warp does? No, I am not. The developer may or may not be able to hit 60 frames per second. And if they do miss a frame, it's extremely jarring to the end user. And so what the Oculus SDK does is it continues to monitor your head tracking and your head movement, and it does sort of a prediction of where your head will be at a particular time in the future and modifies the way that the image looks based off of these movements. So it's just a small distortion to the original image if you miss the frame. Right. It's in order to prevent the, it, what Carmack sort of likened it to frame dropping insurance. You want to, you want to try really hard to make the frame rate, but just in case you don't, there's a little tiny bit of a fallback. Hmm. Do you think that would be perceptible? Like say, for instance, if the next frame is vastly different from what the Oculus would calculate within its time warp? There's only so fast and jerkily you can move your head, so. I guess that would be another advantage of going up to 75, 90, or 120 hertz, is that the difference would be even smaller. 
yeah, I, I definitely agree. Switching to the higher frame rates, even if the application isn't able to hit those frame rates, would be beneficial to the user. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting about Carmack's presentation on the gear was he, he kept on doing these, trying to do these optimizations to make it run faster. And he kept on going and running it and it would go like 57 frames per second, not just not quite there. And it turned out that every time he went and did an optimization, he was using a little bit of, he was using a little bit less of the CPU and resources. And so the system was, which is monitoring the resources to try and optimize power usage was going, well, you're not using all of your resources. I'm going to reduce the CPU clock. And so then the frame rate goes down and this keeps on happening. You keep optimizing and it keeps frame rate, uh, and the system keeps on kicking it down just a little bit. And so it was an endless cycle. And eventually he, uh, f- figured out what was going on. Uh, I believe with the cooperation of, was it an Android engineer or a, a Samsung engineer? I think he's a Google engineer. Yeah. He, he, with the help of a, a Google engineer, basically had to go to Samsung, I think, again, to get them to to turn that off uh, in this particular case. What I found funny is in part of the presentation, he was talking about the possibility of putting a lithium-ion, something like either oh, right. a magnet he, he, or some... Yeah, yeah. Be, the, the reason for that, the, the reason he thought about doing that was because he noticed that when you touch the screen, it would magically go to full frame rate. And that's because... I guess the user interaction part is uh highly is must be a high priority and thus automatically kicks it out of the state. And so they had thought about having something with the same capacitive properties as a finger being stuck into there to keep it at the at the proper CPU uh clock rate. And in, in the end they ended up having I believe a, a selectable a selectable clock rate. Uh, the first naive thing that they had was a minimum one, but that that too is too unpredictable. And so I think they're going to go for a locked CPU clock for the applications. So the developers are going to try and pick the minimum CPU frequency that they can get away with while still hitting that 60 hertz. And it'll be interesting when they move into a higher refresh rate, if developers will still be able to hit that refresh rate, it'll be helped a little bit by the the time warp stuff. I wonder even if that'll be enough. We we want to get into higher refresh rates because it 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 takes basically a, a minimum of ninety hertz or so to not have flicker for one with the OLEDs for for normal human perception and we want as even as high as uh, 120 hertz because that's a nice even divisor for lots of formats and yeah i found that pretty interesting that he was thinking about 120 hertz because of 24 fps movies and 30 fps tv and then 60 fps games right and so then the question is well how do you get to 120 hertz and in this particular presentation, he made the case for a return to interlacing, which I'm sure made a lot of people groan when they first heard it. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I was quite surprised to hear that. A lot of this is because the hardware 
already exists for doing this kind of presentation in a lot of cases. And so it would just be a matter of modifying timings since the, the signals, the signals would have no trouble getting to the pixels. It's only the pixel transitions that are, that would be having trouble. So the controller part is all already okay. And so just need to be able to control it better at a device level. And so he's pushing for going to 120 hertz, uh, interlaced. When I was watching that, I was wondering what happens with the artifacts that come up with interlacing. How would that work on something like an Oculus display? Well, I think that the idea is that much like when you had old TV, they determined that it was better to have the higher frame rate with interlacing than it was to have the lower frame rate solid. Since things are extraordinarily frame rate sensitive in VR, uh, Carmack thinks that the same thing basically applies here. Visual accuracy is less important than the high amount, than the quickly changing. So he started talking about how the first step is doing one line on, one line off, normal interlacing, which the hardware probably exists for. And then he got into other things like every eighth line or, and then finally programmable interlacing. Yeah, the 8x interlacing just seems completely crazy. Like I never thought about anything like that ever. Like well, what's the uh what's the purpose of that? Right. Specifically. But the first thing that I thought of and I'm sure there's a good reason why it's not done is why don't we do start off why don't we do something like alternate pixel interlacing? Like an offset pixel, like every, every other pixel in the next row down is offset. So it's a diagonal that's, that's off. That's a really good question, actually. And is I'm, there I'm, ever I'm been... wondering if it has to do with the, the fact that a lot of displays basically rely on old scanning hardware where they, where they basically are forced to go down the lines. Would that apply to something like LCD or OLED in any I sort of way? See, see, I don't think that it would, except that maybe they were designed with old TVs in mind, and that's, thus they'd still have to modify the hardware. Well, Carmack did say that part of him going towards the interlacing route is that there was probably some old logic still implemented within the chips that's either rarely or never used. That's why I think that, yes, the, the going to pure interlace would be the easiest. I wonder if the step forward, I wonder if the programmable line interlacing is a lot easier than going every other pixel or if it's a little bit easier or why not do something like that? Because I think that would re uh, produce a better image. He may propose that if he ends up winning over the Samsung hardware engineers. They're, they're smart people on that team. I have to imagine that someone has thought of that. Well, I mean, part of the thing about programming or engineering is that... Uh, you get requests all the time and you look at it and you say, yeah, well, it's kind of a neat idea, but how useful is it? Mm -hmm. Is it worth putting my time and is it worth putting the resources into something just because it's cool as opposed to being able to be used all the time? Right. So, I mean, I do get, I do get the perspective of a Samsung engineer that oh, they're no, not no, going to no, no. I was, I was wondering why, why Carmack was not thinking about it as a step forward. Uh, as to oh. going to the alternate pixels instead of continuing with the line by line. I'm wondering, I'm wondering what his rationale was for rejecting that. It may just be a difference in controller logic that it's a much greater leap than doing 8x interlace. Hmm. You should actually, um, you should actually ask him 
it may be uh I think it's a decent <laughs> it's a decent enough question that he may actually answer you. Would something like the twittering effect, which happens on an interlace display, an alternate, even odd interlace display, would that be worse on something that's an 8x interlace display? It would probably look sort of like there's a little warping in the image. Like it, it would, since everyone is progressively closer to the current one, it would, it would look like things are bending a little bit. Hmm. And it might actually be less, ob- it might actually be less obvious than a, a normal interlacing, uh, because, in st- because instead of being a, a very jarring sudden frame all the way away, that it is just a slight bend in, in the, in the way the image looks. I guess what I'm thinking here is, if 8x is better, why wasn't it done back in the past? Once again, it might have been a hardware constraint. Or maybe they tried it and they said, it that sucks. Or it's something that's trade, or it's something where the trade-off is only useful within something like VR. Right. Moving on. Uh, one of the other things that they announced at the show that I thought was pretty interesting their pl- was their plans for Oculus Share. Now, they already have a thing called Oculus Share, which is where you can go and look up games. And there's usually download links, but sometimes it's just links to the developer web pages. And that's helped Discovery a- quite a bit. Previous to that, there were other... There was a site called Rift Enabled that had a nice catalog of of Oculus-compatible games. But I think that the Oculus Share is definitely going to take it over. And the announcement that they made, the thing that's new, is that they're now going to have more plans for discovery, downloading, and monetization of these games, essentially turning it into another Steam-like service. Is is this something that you would be interested in for VR? Do you think this is an appropriate place, or do you think that there should be a tag in Steam already? I think it should just be a tag in Steam, because <laughs> what you're doing is you're having people download yet another app, kind of like Origin. Right now, it's just a web page. Yeah. I mean, I can see the benefit from Oculus's perspective that they get a certain cut of the game revenue, and it helps in a minor way, but I think it helps more having a bigger push on the existing game services. I think from the company's perspective, this is a good idea. But I think that from the user's perspective, I'm not completely convinced yet. And I, I must say that it, it is, it is nice being able to find all of the DK2 stuff in one place. Another thing is on Steam, there's sort of a, a bar that you have to pass before you're admitted where if that same bar were applied to a lot of the DK2 demos, you wouldn't be even seeing... There'd be like three things there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I think that they want more visibility of the stuff that's in progress. Yeah, that uh, elephant game I don't see making Steam. It should go there. What was that game called again? The game that you're thinking of called Dumpy Going Elephants. One of the saddest things to me about the DK2 is that Dumpy has not been ported for it. Really? No. No Dumpy. That was that was the most compelling part of playing on the DK1 was being an elephant. The the webpage still says like Mac version coming soon. It said that for like a year now. Do you think the guy is just uh hoping for enough donations to have people get him a DK2 so he can port it? 
Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. I would have thought that, I mean, because he had, it won, it won like a contest. So you'd think that he'd put more effort into it. You would think that Oculus would just send him a DK too. And it, oh, the other thing, it was, um, Dumpy Going Elephants was one of the little screenshotted things that was put up when the, I believe it was when the CEO was talking, or maybe it was the head of product. Hmm. A screenshot of Dumpy was put up, which so it's it's really sad that it was used in the Oculus Connect presentation, but has not been updated for the DK2. Dumpy was one of those games that felt fresh the way I felt when I first played Katamari. It had a great style to it. Yeah. And you're doing something that you don't normally do. So for anyone that's wondering, <laughs> you, we I don't think we actually described what you do. You're a you're an elephant that's running through a sort of cartoon with all these it's 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 very similar style to katamari and you're hitting things with your trunk you don't you don't normally get to be an elephant every day hitting things with your trunk and watching them fly off into the distance as as you're running forward into the ufos <laughs> and then the, the U, at the very end the ufos kidnap you <laughs> Yeah. Aliens Land Here is brought to you by Dumpy. Well, the, the aliens, aliens land here. The aliens landed in Dumpy. This is a perfectly appropriate topic for the show. Has aliens oh. in it, even though we don't talk about aliens. Oh, totally. And I think another one of the reasons that they wanted to do the Oculus share, I, I sort of wonder if they had pressure from Facebook to do something like that, because... They, Facebook definitely wanted them to be a platform. They wanted to be, they wanted to be the platform maker. And in this particular instance, if they are the, the source of these games, if they are where you go to get VR games, then even if you don't buy their hardware, you're still going through their system. You're still going through their platform. Oh, which would explain if there are other people who take the open design of the DK1. The end user will potentially still be going to Oculus Share and getting games through it. Yeah. I think this is an important business decision that, that Oculus made. Do you know when there's going to be an actual storefront? No idea. Is it going to be an app, kind of like how Steam is right now? Again, I'm not sure. Does Oculus have a good working relationship with Valve right now? Or are they kind of becoming competitors in the way that Google and Apple ended up becoming competitors? Previously, they were just doing collaboration, but a lot of the VR people, a lot of the people that were working on VR at Valve are now at Oculus. And I'm not sure if Valve is annoyed that they took their people or if they're happy because they didn't want to work, they didn't want to focus on VR in the first place. I know that, I remember that when they did the layoffs a while back, that they were, that some of the VR people were involved in that. Valve might just not want to be involved in it. Yeah. But it would make sense for Valve to partner then, because it takes less resources from their yeah, perspective. Ex- except for the except for the competitive nature of the stores, yes. Yeah, so I see a bit of a rift, shall we say. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I did that just to get the groan. <sighs> so they also announced some new demos. Uh, they announced like a thing, Elemental VR, Couch Night Showdown, and they had another public demo area of the new prototype. 
my 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 only comment here is it's sort of disappointing that I know that they have all these internal demos, but they don't really release them to the general public except for the Tuscany demo. And I I really want to try some of these because I've heard from people who have actually tried them that they are really cool. Why don't they release them? That's a I, I don't know. That's a, a very good question. Maybe they don't feel that they're public ready or something like that. It's it's very strange that like Couch Nights I've seen in videos where they're demoing it before and and I've heard about people playing it, but it would be nice to I could download it and try it out. You would think that it would be a great idea because. There are people like you that get the DK1 and the DK2, and what happens? You have a get-together with all of your friends, you bring the unit over, you show off the demos, and people go, oh, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. I think I'll get one when they become publicly available. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why they wouldn't try to have as many demos as possible. Yeah. And I I know that they have a fairly significant in-house development effort for these things, so I'm not exactly sure... Mm. why they're waiting maybe they just don't feel they're ready i guess speaking of games and demos how much do you know about the zelda type game that carmack was talking about i don't know anything about it yeah he didn't mention that by name but he just said oh a zelda type game we're working on and my ears kind of picked up there right that that seems like it would be pretty cool but i don't know anything about it there was a, a lot of discussion especially during the abrash talk about what's needed in order to create presence. And I guess first we can go over a little bit about what, what presence is. Presence is feeling like you are in a, in a different place. Like not just, not just seeing this place or interacting with this place, but feeling like you're there at a more base instinctual level. And this, in getting this, getting this presence is sort of the goal that they have with uh, VR. In, in trying to get there, they, they notice that unconscious processing matters for a whole lot. Abrash's example was him standing on a ledge looking down. And even though he knew that it wasn't real, he still had the, the body reactions that he would get from actually standing on a ledge. Like the, the changes in the galvanic skin response and whatnot. It would yeah. still be there. And the anxiety. Yeah. It sort of underscores that uh, a lot of what you feel as being there are not controllable by you. Even if you, even if you logically know that you aren't somewhere, a lot of what you feel is con your, your perception is reality, essentially. Basically, any optical illusion, any illusions are demonstrations of this. And another example is the what's called the McGurk effect. Are you, are you are you familiar with the McGurk effect? I am not. So, if you say the word bar, and you just keep it bar, bar, bar. If you overlay a video of it, and the video has a mouth motion for far, 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 then you will actually hear you'll hear the word far, not just not just uh, interpreted like in in at the point of your brain before it gets to your consciousness it will be transformed into far and you can test this effect for yourself by there's a video where on one side of the screen it has the mouth motion for far 
and the other side of the screen it has the mouth motion for bar you can look at one and then look at the other and you can notice and you will notice that the sound in your head changes as you look back and forth that's so weird i've never heard of that before yeah, it's incredibly strange. And there's there's other f- things, like the, the other example that he gave is the you've seen a lot of like the smaller circle and the bigger circle and one looks bigger, but it's actually the same size. But it right. turns out that that's that's not just that that's a that's a base processing thing being fooled. The projection onto the visual cortex, uh, by the time it gets there, it's already bigger. You should show you should put examples of this in the show notes. Yeah, I'll, I'll put some nice uh, optical illusions and audio illusions, maybe just the one audio illusion, into the show notes. This sounds very similar to a talk that Abrash had before, where he was talking about perception and being over a ledge and whatnot. And from what I recall from that, that he said one of the biggest hurdles is latency, in that if you move your head and it takes even a consciously imperceptible amount of time for the display to adjust that it brings you out of presence almost immediately. Yeah. This is part of the reason that they wanted that they have their own custom hardware for doing the accelerometer. And also part of the reason that they do the, the time warp prediction thing where they can get rid of a lot of that problem. This is why Carmack keeps mentioning submillimeter accuracy. Yeah. To have to have your head situated in the right place so you don't get nauseous. And that comes into presence, that whenever you get pulled out of presence, there seems to be a tendency for the brain to make you sick. Mm-hmm. So they, they had talked about the major areas that they work in for maintaining presence are latency, tracking, the display, the optics... And then the extras, and the extras are things like audio, taste, smell, touch, that all can actually contribute very significantly. And anything, as the closer you get, basically, the less nausea you have. With regards to tracking, the things that they want are six degrees of head, uh, six degrees of freedom, head tracking, no jitter, uh, large tracking volume so you can move around, uh, and then another advantage of the gear is that you can do the sw- you can sit in a swivel chair and spin and spin and spin, and so even though it doesn't have positional tracking, because you can spin and spin and spin, you can aim yourself by spinning instead of having a mouse look. And the mouse look is one of the biggest inducers of nausea. Whereas if you just spin your chair and then use a key to go forward, it's not nearly as nausea inducing. <laughs> That's a crazy idea. And you can do that with the portable version that you can't do that with the the wired one. So hopefully all they'll all be wi- uh, wireless eventually, but I'm not seeing that for at least five years out. In, anyway, so w- for the display, they found, as I mentioned before, at least 90 hertz refresh on a uh, low persistence display. Otherwise, there's perceived flicker. Probably should go up to 120 just so you can get the even divisors. Uh, you need at least 1K by 1K per eye on the internal buffer and actually rendered to the screen as well. And at this, at this 1K by 1K, it ends up being like, what is it? Like essentially the same pixel density on your eye as a quake at 320 by 240 was. So, so pretty bad, but it's the minimum necessary for presence. Eventually, I think 
that they wanted to go to at least 8K by 8K. I'm guessing this is probably also at least five years out. And full retinal resolution, I guess, is 32K by 24K. But the thing is, and at this you, at this you would have, uh, the full retinal resolution, whereas in, if you look directly at anything on the display, you wouldn't be able to tell. But the, the, the resolution of your retina falls off very quickly from the center going outward. So you, if you had something that did eye tracking, you wouldn't need the, that full resolution, you, but because it could adjust the display to be, have the highest density where you needed it. Oh, you mean for rendering graphics and whatnot? Right, right. <laughs> you made it sound like the uh, amount of pixels on the display itself would adapt. <laughs> well, that's actually, that's actually also a potential thing that you could do if, uh, if you had, if you had optics and, uh, and motors, but I, that's probably something you'd want to stay away from, yeah. I'd see that being a daunting amount of complexity to pull something like that off. To have it, to have it move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially along with your eyes, which your eyes move pretty quickly. Yes, they do. So for, for latency, it, they said that it needs to be under 20 milliseconds from tracker to CPU to GPU to display to photons. And if you don't get under that, then you start having problems. Uh, with the time warp, you get from that to something that feels like zero, potentially, as long as everything goes right. But you need at least the 20 in hardware. Uh, that comes to be 50 frames a second, I think. Right. So you Am can I have right? at most. So that means that you can have at most one frame of lag at 60 frames a second. And then if you bumped it up to 120 frames a second, you could have two point something frames of lag. But at least you get a buffer then. Yeah. So if at 120 frames a second, at least you can do things like have uh, a buffer, a double buffer, whereas you can't have a double buffer, uh, at least not on the, at least not on the gear at 60 frames a second. He had mentioned extras that he had said about things like touch, taste, smell, um, audio. So I guess that's, uh, audio is the first step, I take it. Audio is, audio is probably the easiest of those to do. Yeah. Then, but then I think actually smell is the next easiest. Really? Yeah, because there's like a whole bunch of base component smells that make up a lot of what you smell. So you can get sort of a crude smell of vision relatively easily. <laughs> That's so weird to think about. <laughs> Just see if. I'm just imagining playing a game and having a bad smell fill the room. Yes, because they would, of course, focus on the bad smells. <laughs> Ooh, rotting um, corpses. Yay. Uh, you ever remember the scratch and sniff? Yeah. One of my favorite scratch and sniffs I remember from a kid was there was a magazine and they were advertising the little mini game for Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And on there, there was a sticker of, I fart in your general direction, and if you oh, no. scratched and sniffed it, it would smell terrible. Oh, no. That's horrible. Yeah. yeah. It's just, uh, I'm surprised that's never been done if it's really all not all that difficult. People have made prototypes, but there isn't really much of a market for them. <laughs> I'm just imagining a text-based game where you enter a room, it smells like raspberries. Ugh. You know? <laughs> 
A lot of Disney rides actually have some smell. Yeah, and they also have music on their roller coasters, which is just bizarre to me. <laughs> uh, so, so getting back to audio for a little bit, this, uh, what that's when I've played at the DK two, that's that's definitely a multiplier on how well one of the demos is received. The Titans of Space, in particular, the music adds a lot to the immersion, and it's sort of. It sort of counters the one of the major issues that I have with the DK2 and DK1 is that, sure, the field of view is better than pretty much anything else on the market, but it's still too limiting for me. I'd like, I'd, I'd still really like something that is more wraparound. Like, if I'm going through a bunch of starfields, I want to seem like the things are actually whizzing by beside me, and maybe my peripheral vision is just too good. Oh, but I don't know, I, I, because supposedly it was asked about, it was, it was asked about with the Crescent Bay prototype, but the people that uh, Oculus seem to indicate that uh, improving the field of view beyond where they already have it is not one of their priorities. But I would like it to be one of their priorities. What would it take to help with the field of view? So, I mean, at some point, you, you, you can basically have either it be wider and that's the major issue i want things around the left side and the right side to be further out the center my eyes over the image overlaps with my eyes so it's not that big of a deal if it goes for, if my right eye doesn't go that much further left and my left eye doesn't go that much further right but i want my right eye to go way further right and my left eye to go way further left which you can either do with a larger with with optics that make you sort of zoom in further or you can have a larger display which would be too heavy or you can have a wraparound display which with OLED, I think is doable, but it's unclear whether the major display manufacturers want to get into something like that. It's up to Carmack to convince Samsung to go that route. Yeah, Samsung, Carmack needs to convince Samsung that a wraparound display is what's needed for phones. He had mentioned that he usually has things that are also applicable to phones in his suggestions. Yeah, well, that's how he convinces them to do stuff. Right. For, for the, for the interlace thing, he's trying to convince them to do that by mentioning how the, the scroll feel will be better. Realistically, do you think that's the case? I mean, I look at, uh, I look at the latency within things like scroll and I, I don't think of it being a constraint of the FPS. Yeah. At least within the display, I see it as being limiting within the software itself. Like Mm -hmm. there being lag within the software. I, I guess this is a good transition into my impressions of some DK2 things that I tried. So that, the, the Titans of Space is one example of where audio really helped. And that's just, that's just music sitting in a cockpit going around looking at stars and planets and stuff. There's a, it's not really a game. There's, it's more of an experience that's called Don't Let Go. And in Don't Let Go, you have to put what the, your left finger on the left control and your right finger on the right control and not let go of no matter what's happening. And so it does things like have a bunch of hornets fly around you. And then it has a a raptor run up, run up to you and growl. Then there's like, uh, well, okay, I guess that's not scary enough for you. And it has like a spider that, that goes and it's going to go and climb up your virtual arm, which is a bit, disconcerting even though you know that it's not real (laughs) and these things are these things are pretty easy to deal with if you're just looking at it 
but when they include the audio, it, it can be a bit creepy. How does that work with something like a spider that isn't exactly making noise? Well, first they play like uh, like the spider alert, and they change the music, and then they uh, they do other sorts of like creepy sound effects at the same time. They they also dim the lights, which is also part of it at that, what, at that point. What is a spider alert? I have never heard of a spider alert. That's just what they called it. They had a giant spider alert. It's all it's all it's all a psychological trick, just like the whole thing is. But mm. the thing is, it doesn't have to work on your on a conscious level. It, being effective on a subconscious level is enough. Well, what happens if you close your eyes in this case? If you close your eyes and you're just thinking about the spider alert that they just talked about, you, you should try this trick. Go to someone and tell them to close their eyes, and then tell them that a spider is crawling on them. <laughs> even if they know it's not there, they're going to have a problem. Even even without real VR, the audio of saying, "Hey, hey, you know, look look on your shoulder. There there's a spider there." <laughs> Compelling new game experiences. It 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 turns what would have been easy to deal with uh kind of uncomfortable. I want to try that now. I guess cuz <laughs> I'm a masochist. Apparently. I'm Things like the knives going at your hands are way easier to deal with than something crawling on you, apparently. Mm. Getting back to I, I, my general impressions with things that I tried, I'm, I'm sort of talking about generalities more than the specific cases of the apps. Uh, I noticed that, as I mentioned earlier, we are really, really sensitive to frame rate. If things were not locked at the same frame rate as the application, it caused a lot of discomfort, even with their uh, time warp stuff, which I'm pretty sure in many cases didn't get used appropriately because it did, did weird sort of jittery things in a lot, uh, in some of them. And there's a, there's a roller coaster that uses the new Unreal 4 engine. When I did that at like high detail, it was very nausea inducing, uh, even more than a roller coaster should be. Uh, and, but when I did that at the lowest resolution, yeah, it it was pretty comfortable to do. Unfortunately, it also looked ugly. And another one is the Euro Truck Simulator, which I thought was really a great demo for the Oculus. But I had to run it in low low resolution in order to make not make me nauseous, which was disappointing. Uh, it has some other cool stuff, like I can turn my head, uh, push my head out the window, and look back when I'm backing the truck up. And that sort of gets me to the the next point that. Uh, something to make VR good is to have sort of a slower pace than normal. And that's the Euro truck simulator. Since you're driving a big honking truck, you're not, uh, you're not overwhelmed with the experience like you are in, in, in some of the things. Like if you play Half-Life 2, you'll get nauseous pretty quickly because it's extremely fast motion and going all, all over the place. Uh, even with the positional tracking and whatnot. Just because of the nature of the experience, but when you do, when you have the the slow truck motion, it, it works. For, it's it's very compelling. So I take it it would work for a game like Thief, where you're sneaking around. It would work better for a game like Thief, where you're sneaking around and looking at stuff, or or um, translations of the old point and click adventures. I imagine would work very well as well. Yeah. Some things that were common problems in the demos that I saw were tearing in one of the eyes, which just 
is extremely annoying. I, I saw that in a whole bunch of the demos, and I think it's relating to the underlying technology that they were using that hadn't been updated or something like that. Um, because not all of the demos have that problem. And it, it seems to not be purely a frame rate related thing because uh, some of the ones that were rendering smoothly still had this annoying tearing down my, the middle of my right eye. And a lot of them still have this annoying head mounted display setup pain where Sometimes the tracking won't work, or sometimes I have to disable the Oculus service. And a lot of them have been updated to do uh, the direct to Rift rendering, as in you don't set it up as an uh, external monitor anymore, whereas like a like a secondary display anymore. And that that improves things a lot for the setup experience, but a lot of them are still kind of painful. How does that work? Setting it up to go directly to the Rift. Uh, usually you launch a separate app for it and then the app will take care of it. So from their perspective, it's something they do in the SDK side. Hmm. So it doesn't register as a device on your computer in this case? Yeah, in this case, it's not, it's not, it doesn't register as a monitor anymore. Hmm. That's odd. That's very odd. Even though they plug it in through the HDMI. Hmm. So when you're saying that there's apps or demos that haven't been updated, is this because the SDK they're building against an old version of the SDK? You're thinking. Well, that's the funny thing. Like, I know they must be building against a newer version of SDK because they still they're still getting the data from the positional camera, so I can move my head back and forth. Other things don't seem to be updated, and I'm not exactly sure where the integration problem is there. Well, it's entirely possible that there's still bugs to work out with the SDK. I don't think it's an SDK issue. I think it's an issue with the software that's using the SDK. Hmm. They're not using it right. You're not holding your DK2 right. (laughs) Another common problem that they had was things that have a representation of your body are often broken in the DK2 because you move your head backward and then you clip outside of your body if it's like, especially in cockpit view kinds of games where you're sitting in a cockpit and and so they have like you're showing your right hand on one thing and your left hand on uh, on another control um elite dangerous uses this to nice effect except that when you move your head backward you suddenly clip out of your body i i have a tendency to when i'm starting up an app to be leaned into the computer and so if i don't do a calibration where i'm leaned back than where I actually want to be. A lot of times I'll lean back and all of a sudden I'm behind my avatar. So that's just a game issue, correct? That is just a game issue. What I'm saying is these are common issues uh, from the game uh, designer's perspective, not DK2 issues. I would think that part of the solution here is within the game itself, just don't render your head. No, the body is the problem. So I, I lean back and I see the body that stayed in place. So because, you see part of the, the whole body, not just the head. Okay. Right. Like, like I said, this is common in cockpit games, which are normally very compelling. <laughs> but since the since the guy is staying in his cockpit in a seated position the whole game, if you move your head back, you clip outside of yourself. Well, you're having an out-of-body experience. Clearly. The, the last thing about the DK2 that I just wanted to mention, and the Oculus Connect in particular is that I really like being at the beginnings of things. So I was at the very beginning of the development of autonomous vehicles, and I was at the very beginning of GPGPU stuff. I I wrote some of the 
uh, I wrote it GPGPU stuff back when you had to hijack OpenGL and use pixel shaders. And I, I got a DK1 when they first started, but I, I'm sort of wishing that I had put more effort into the Oculus specific stuff. And I wish that I had gone to Oculus Connect. And I don't think it'll be the same next year because things will have been a lot further along. So I sort of am kicking myself for not getting in deeper earlier. Well, the VR market is still very nascent. So even if you go next year, there's a good chance that they still won't have a production product ready. I still wanted to be there in the beginning. Oh, well. All right. So we're going to close off the show here. Thank you for listening to Aliens Land Here. You can contact us on Twitter at Aliens Land Here. And you can view the show notes at alh.fm. And you can also contact us. We have a contact form there. And I hope you have a great day. See you next time. Did you want to do a couple of very brief impressions of what you thought of your iPhone 6 Plus now that we're in the after show? For one, it's too big. It is way too big for me. I mean, I'll keep it for a year because, well, I purchased it and I'm going to have to reap what I sell, I guess. Well, you could trade it in like the guy on, what was it, The Verge did? All right. I'm going to have to have a device that does three Retina 3X for testing. So there's not much I can do about that. I, um, I too think that it is too big for my purposes. And next year, I will get a smaller one. I don't need to keep it other than for development, but that's enough of a reason for me to keep it this time. I mean, the display is beautiful, I think. Yeah, it's a like, really nice looking display. I held my 5S up in comparison and you know looking at it closely you can see the difference in quality between things like uh, text rendering and icons and whatnot and it's really obvious actually which the the apps that were just scaled up yeah i was surprised about that well are you talking about app icons or are you talking about apps Uh, i was talking about apps are you talking about app icons well app icons are obvious but apps are even more obvious simply because the top bar ends up scaling. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the real telltale sign that the app is scaled. Have you tried, have you played with the zoom mode at all? Yeah, but I haven't really kept it that way. It's yeah, I not, I would do that either. It's not compelling enough for me. I'm happy that it fits in my pocket, but I am sad that it is difficult for me to deal with when I'm doing things like putting in headphones. This is actually probably going to be the thing that finally gets me to get a Bluetooth headset. Why is it difficult putting in headphones? Like what? Like if I'm like if I'm worried that I'm going because the most most of the time when I put in headphones, I'm actually going I'm going out for a walk, and so I'm over cement, and I'm worried that when I'm manipulating it with one hand, getting uh, headphones out of my pocket with the other hand, and and trying to detangle the cord. Uh, the, the, the cord detangling in particular, uh, I'm worried that I'm going to drop it while I'm getting that, all of that mess of stuff done. It's a lot more slippery than the 5S. And I'm not sure if it's because of the thinness of it or if it's because of the rounded corners. And also because the, also the additional weight is, makes it a little bit more difficult to manipulate with one hand. Have you dropped yours yet? I have not. Have you? Um, a couple times, but they were soft drops. 
Like I'm sitting in a car and it drops to the bottom part of the car. Oh, I see. So, I mean, just like a foot, not three feet or anything like that. Yeah, I haven't done anything like that. I'm glad that I have giant hands, since this is an even more giant phone. I find that I hold it differently. Like, uh, usually with a smaller phone, you hold your hand at the bottom. And now I find myself holding my hand, uh, holding it from the side so that I can reach my thumb down to the lower left and then up to the upper left and still be able to reach stuff one handed. Yeah, that's, that's my major issue with it actually is that I've, I'm forced to hold it a little bit further up to, for balance issues. See, this whole time you're holding it wrong. If you hold it from the side, it's not, it, it feels better to hold. Uh, and it's not as, because if you hold it from the bottom, it feels, it's, the weighting isn't right. So, and that's how I always held the other one. But if I hold it from the, 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 the slightly up from that, then I can reach almost everything with my thumb. But, uh, the, the, the home button, is awkward to press. I can I can tap it pretty easy. I can touch it pretty easily, but putting the force down on it is awkward. Like if yeah. I want to press the if I want to go home or something. Do you find yourself using the reachability at all? No, I've ne- I I pretty much never use it. Do you? No, I, I don't use it at it's all. It's easier for me to find a way to get my other hand free and tap something than it is for me to to, to move because that's the other thing. Like since I'm holding it in the middle of the phone, uh, I can tap the lower, I, I can tap the home button, but it's, it's awkward and it doesn't feel good. It feels better to just use my other hand. I'm tempted to turn it off simply because I've run into glitches with reachability. I don't know if eight or I don't know if 8.0.2 has fixed that. Hmm. I, I don't know. I haven't used it enough to run into any glitches. Or do you mean you found run into glitches when you're not even doing anything with it at all? Uh, I find like if I accidentally double tap and it ends up going down, I, I've had cases where the reachability is going the wrong direction or stays that way, or I have an issue. I have an issue with it not exiting reachability. (laughs) So then I have to lock my direction sounds hilarious to me. Does it like it goes above to the top of the screen? Yes, it has done that. Does does the dock go up or does just the regular screen? It's um not the dock, it's just the icons. Just the like icons. I've had, <laughs> I've had it happen. Yeah, it's like the iPhone being spiteful to you. <laughs> oh, you want to touch this? No, you don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't want to launch that app. And uh, one last thing, H265 doesn't work on the iPhone within Safari. It seems to only be limited to FaceTime over cellular for oh, some arbitrary dumb reason. That sucks. Yep. Well, maybe so all my work, was all my work was for naught. Oh well. S- yeah. Send an angry email to Tim Cook. Dear Tim Cook, I hate you. Please provide H two sixty five on my iPhone six. Then I will love you. <clears throat> Signed, Mark. Or you could just give him one star, like like all the App Store reviewers do. <laughs> <too. laughs> 